Welcome to the Distorted by Glamour podcast. This is a podcast about labor issues in media. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm here with my co-host, Charles Hain. Hey, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about two topics, golden handcuffs and second chances. And we'll get into what that means in just a moment. But before we do, I'd like to introduce our first ever guest, Elle Roth Brunette. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So Elle is a big change maker in the industry. She actually built Google's Changemaker Collective, which has given over 40 underrepresented filmmakers the opportunity to tell stories that portray a more inclusive world. She conceptualized and sold in and built these multi-million dollar programs to provide financial leadership and creative support to women and non-binary folks and people of color and members of the LGBTQIA plus and disabled communities through these partnerships with partners, including Array for the feature film grant, Paul Fagg's Powder Keg for the female directed shorts program, the Blacklist Screenwriters Fellowship, the PGA Create for Underrepresented Producers program, Hello Sunshine's Lit Up for Diverse Female Authors, and the Women in Film Shorts Lab for female production teams. Whew, that is quite an introduction. Elle, thank you again for being here on the Disordered by Glamour podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. That's like the best intro I've ever heard. I'm like, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Thank you. So, Charles, just to kick it off, when I say golden handcuffs, what does that make you think of? When you first brought that up as the theme for this episode, I was like, it makes me think about like those books in the 80s, like what color is your parachute? <laughs> and then like it like it's this whole world that like I've never been around because like no I you know I work for the City University of New York no one talks about golden handcuffs at the City University which is like you know a, a wonderful place but not a place that's throwing so much money at you that you're, you feel trapped like we're all happy to be here because we love it here and so like golden handcuffs is, is a term that like I hadn't thought about in terms of media at all and I was like okay I really am excited to hear this angle because it is it is a thing that exists I, I saw a 60 minute story about it but like I don't I don't really know what it is I have no I have no concept of golden handcuffs. That's when you get paid so much money you can't leave a job that sucks, right? That is a, definitely a form of golden handcuffs. It's a term that's thrown around in everywhere from Silicon Valley to you know the sort of traditional advertising world. And it you're you're right. It really usually refers to these benefits. Often they're deferred payments that take the form of stock that are provided by an employer to basically discourage an employee from leaving and going somewhere else. So um, there is a sometimes this monetary element attached to it. But there's also this thing that I think sounds very similar to the genesis of the Distorted by Glamour podcast. And it is this other idea of prestige that comes to with it. So you may get that in Silicon Valley, but also what does that look like in the entertainment industry? Because money, but also power and status are these powerful incentives that can keep us tied to a job where our hearts and souls may not be attached to it. Or on the flip side, maybe your heart is completely attached to it because you're so passionate about storytelling. So whether it's a six-figure income salary or something that is the opportunity to ascend to like a power of position, these are 
powerful motivators for staying in a certain role. And I looked into this, I consulted a couple of research studies, and there's one from Forbes that I'll speak to in a moment, but I wanted to start from sort of this like personal place when when it came to like exploring this topic of golden handcuffs. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I started my career in tech. I kind of like fell into this job by accident, starting in Google's customer service department. Um, I was used to be a, a history teacher in Michigan, and I accidentally fell into this job and uh, because a friend recommended me. And I was I I was introduced to this world that was really putting an emphasis on the experience and the benefits. And uh, and I received stock early on, uh, Google stock, which is very valuable. And I did something that actually a lot of my peers didn't do, but I left after you know two and a half or three years. Um, and I remember making my move to a publisher where I moved into a sales role. And I was very, very upfront about what I wanted, which was I wanted to move into a storytelling role. I wanted to tell stories. And when I went to this publisher, I was like any type of story. Let me tell a story for brands. Let me tell a story for editorial. I will start at the bottom and work my way up. Um, And I was craving that type of role, that storytelling role. And the promise was acknowledged. I was I was allowed to sort of dance around these storytelling opportunities at this at this job. And I would take on additional projects outside of my core job where I could shadow other teams that were focused on storytelling. And it wasn't until my last day at that company when I had finally realized that it didn't seem like there was actually a tangible way for me to move into a storytelling role. I frankly was just like really good at the other job, which was ad sales. And it wasn't until that last day when I was leaving the company to get that fresh break that the company founder told me that I would not have been able to make that move to the creative side, to the storytelling side. And to be fair, I hadn't asked outright if I could make that move. This was my first time even having that conversation. And to hear, you know, this storyteller who I have looked up to for so long say that it was like kind of the shocking moment. And I realized that I had created my own golden handcuffs, these handcuffs of possibility. And I think that this is an interesting segue into the entertainment industry, because as referenced in the name of our show, we talk a lot about the situations we put up with because we're in such this glamorous and uh, alluring industry, the the industry of telling stories, Hollywood. And so reflecting on that, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I can totally see the handcuffs that I put on myself in that previous situation be something that happens and that we see in entertainment. So I'm curious now that you have that sort of background, seeing how I carried over this terminology from tech into the Hollywood experience. Have you in your time working in in entertainment, Charles, seen or experienced this type of handcuffing yourself based off of a possibility of getting something or getting to that position that you want? Well, I mean, it's the whole thing with the name of the podcast, right? Distorted by Glamour is it's like, in you know, what's worse in entertainment is it should be like imaginary rainbow handcuffs. Because at least with golden handcuffs, you're actually getting gold. Mm -hmm. Like the theory with golden handcuffs is you're like, well, you're making a quarter million a year, so you can't leave the shitty job because you're getting all this money and it lets you take horseback riding lessons or whatever on weekends. But like in entertainment, it's often you're you're going to get to create, you're going to get to tell stories. This is going to come in the future. 
And so take this other job now so that you can get to this job later that like, you know, so it's like a imaginary rainbows. But as soon as you explained it, I was like, oh, this is actually, I totally see it. It's, you know, it's handcuffs as the thing that hold us to a thing, uh, maybe against our better judgment. I love this imaginary rainbow handcuffs. I think we have to coin that term. Well, I want to get some. Like, yeah. we need like a t-shirt with like invisible rainbow handcuffs in like a uh, Wonder Woman's jet kind of outline-y thing with yes. like, you know, a little rainbow. Because that's exactly what it is, right? We, we handcuffs ourselves to this dream that distorts all of our abilities to negotiate. Can you guys... Charles and Elle, this goes to both of you, but can you think of a specific time, either in entertainment or in your career in general, because um, believe it or not, Elle has worked outside of Google as well. Uh, she's actually one of the few Googlers that I've encountered that has significant experience outside of it. But can you think of that mindset of when you've been sort of like, what has attached you to a job? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking about this for both my own career and entertainment and I think so I started in advertising in New York and on in the creative industry and I also see this in entertainment it's very level dependent so it's like you can't get to Z unless you did A through Y and it's just like if you want to be a account director this is your path if you want to be a creative this is your path and there's not a lot of wiggle room outside of it. And so when you enter that and you're very young and you don't have a lot of experience, you think the old, there's only one route to get to the career that you want. But then after you jump around and get more experience, you realize that you're actually like a much more valuable person if you have different types of experience. And I've also seen that in entertainment. Like there have been people who have left like VP, SVP roles in other industries and have been asked to start over as assistants hmm. in entertainment, having, you know, like 10 to 15 years of, of, of industry experience. And so I think when you've reached a certain level of prestige or when you've reached a certain level in your career, it's kind of, it's hard to think of like, well, I don't want to go back down to the bottom. Um, and so you kind of like, do you stay in a career that you don't love as much or do you take that risk? And those are, it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a lot of like mental handcuffs and there's a lot of imposter syndrome that comes with it as well. So that, that's like kind of mine in my own personal experience. And then on the entertainment side, um, having talked to a lot of directors and producers and writers, there's a lot of people that used to work in development roles that are now leaving to be their own producers. And now that they don't have that, you know, like Lena Dunham brand name behind them or that Hello Sunshine behind them, they're not getting their calls answered as much. And so it's also like that goes back to that prestige mm -hmm. as well. And the fact that like, you're only as good as the last thing that you've done. And this is, this issue is also bigger for women and, and underrepresented groups. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's so great. It's so funny to think about that with advertising. I remember, not that I ever wanted to be an airline pilot, but I remember learning that there's no interlinked seniority at airlines. So, like, you could be a captain at one airline and making, you know, 100 grand a year, which, like, it takes 20 years to get there. And then if that airline shuts down and you go to another airline, you start over at, like, 28 grand a year as a first officer. It's insane to me in these high competition environments, like that story of like senior SVPs who were like have to start over as assistant to climb another ladder because in so many industries, we've worked out ways for that to work. Like in academics where I am now, like if you get tenure at one college, other tenure granting institutions respect it. And so if you move over, it is like 
acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a hard thing to work out. Many industries have figured it out. And but it like preserves power to to say, actually, no, if you want to climb this other ladder, you have to start over at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I totally see that for like, you know, when you are when you are like part of a hot production company and you are calling and you are calling from that company, there's like a speed with which calls are returned and responses are engaged that you don't you absolutely don't get independent. So yeah, I mean it's an interesting it's a thing. I, I we've all also probably stayed in situations longer than we wanted because we thought it was going to go somewhere we didn't know go. I mean, uh Gigi, your story about leaving your uh sales job for this sort of moment when you were like, I can't move over to creative and I really want to. I mean, I don't know if you've listened to Dead Eyes yet, but you should totally listen to Dead Eyes. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. epically brilliant about this very subject of like the external forces that affect us and like how we grapple with that. For any listeners who haven't listened to Dead Eyes, the premise is, um, uh, what is the name of the host? He's a big UCB guy. Connor, Ra- Connor, Connor Radcliffe. Radcliffe. Rat- Radcliffe? Radcliffe? Ratliff. Ratliff. Oh my gosh. Uh, this. Well, I feel like me even mispronouncing his name ties perfectly into the story. He was cast on either Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan. And he was on set and then he got cut suddenly. And it was because Tom Hanks apparently said he had dead eyes. So he goes on this heavyweight-esque journey to figure out why uh, why he, Tom Hanks cut him from this role. And it's a very funny podcast. But I think, you know, it just goes to show how much is is out of our control when it comes to, especially in entertainment. But uh, careers in general. And as Elle mentioned, and Charles mentioned, and I've talked about this also before, is I I had a career and I left mid-career to start from scratch. And I think I am still figuring out how to sort of latch on and what the next move is um, to jumpstart a career. And, you know, we're just uh, here in the new year coming back from the holidays. And one of the the constant conversations that I've that I've faced is, um, what are you up to? What are you working on? From a lot of people who don't work in the entertainment industry, and um, and it always comes with whether it's like an uncle or a stepfather, this sort of unsolicited advice that sometimes you know it all is comes from a place of love, but um, you know sometimes it's like, man, it's way it feels way more complicated than that. And my stepdad keeps coming back to this advice where he's like. Well, can't you just quantum leap into a role, you know, like instead of building from the bottom, just make that leap. And I'm like, I don't know what that looks like. Um, And it's sort of this the inverse of the uh, golden handcuffs in a way, because I it is it does feel like a free fall. And we're actually going to talk about that mid career free fall in just a minute. So that'll be a a, a great segue to that. But um, I'm curious, you know, as people when they're working in entertainment or in careers in general, where they feel stuck, um, you know, if I just do X for this many years, uh, you know, what do you think is a way to navigate it, you know, rationally? Because there is an element of paying your dues. There is an element of gaining the the wisdom you need to, you know, run an entire show, for example. But how do you, one, overcome this feeling of uh, only looking at the ladder and the step that's right in front of you to get 
as a means to an end versus just sort of going for it. I love this question because I think it comes down to your personal value. So the answer would be different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of working with with coaches and therapists. So I, I do all of the journaling all the time. But one of the things that my coach and I worked on are, are what are your values and then where is that lacking in your current career? So for me, like creativity is the number one value. And if you have been in a job where you're doing the same thing over and over again, you're not going to get that for someone else. It might be financial wealth for other people. It might be the ability to be a leader. Like everyone's values are very different. So I think before you even like look at how you can advance in your current role or in another role, I always think it's important to kind of go within yourself and figure out what is important to you. And then also where are the gaps? So if you, you know, want to be put in the ring for more opportunities, then your gap is in your network. So then you would sit down and make a plan of like, okay, well, for the next six months, I'm going to meet with X amount of people every week and really dedicate a lot of my time to doing coffee chats. And this is the intention. And this is how I know that I'm going to be proceeding on my goal. Mm -hmm. So really just like looking at where you are and even within big companies, like you can, you can find holes and sometimes come up with a business need to kind of fill that for yourself. That's what I did with change makers. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then you start kind of designing a role or a life you want. And then like, as you're kind of putting work into that, more things will come to you because if you're just going around saying like, I want to do development or I want to someone to fund my first series. Like that's a pretty steep ask, but if you're going around and saying, okay, well like this person can really help me because they have a great, they can give great feedback on pitching. And this person can really help me because they are phenomenal at treatments and can get really nitty gritty or something like that. So just really figuring out one, what's important to you and your value system and then where your gaps are and then creating a plan to to bridge those two and sticking to it, which is often the hardest part. I, I love that because I feel like the the value I was not able to identify my value um, until it w- I had reached the point where I was in a role that I would essentially have until I retire, and then I I looked everything was great on paper. But I felt still felt this emptiness, and that year while I was still working another job, I. Um, decided to write a pilot and write a screenplay and make a short film and the pilot sucked and the screenplay sucked, but the short film was okay. And it's actually how I got into the school where I got to meet Charles and it sort of opened these doors, but I, you know, was able to manifest within my control these, these things that then let me pressure test and basically say, oh, fuck, this is the thing I've been missing in my life this whole time, this feeling of creativity. And I remember like getting so sick that year, I had strep throat like eight times. And, uh, but despite how tired I was, it was the most fulfilling feeling in the world. Now, Charles, from working with you, you are one of the most like executing, deliberate, intentional, like let's not sit around and talk about this, let's do it which I think is this like very powerful way to move forward. But have you, you know, is, I think that's, if anything, I'm like, oh, that feels like such a great way to overcome these things, like the golden handcuffs or our our rainbow invisible handcuffs. But tell me a little bit more about how you've sort of 
identified sunk costs at certain times or um, have you, do you look back at your career and remember like a time where you felt like you were connected to something and couldn't break from it? Well, I mean, I think the, the similar answer to me is like going back to what you said of like, what's, what's within your locus of control what are the things I can do? And then, then looking at your values, like I started a company because I was like, all right, I want to be, I want to be in a position to be somewhere else. And I could go climb someone else's ladder for a while, or I could like start a business and like just claw and beat my head into the business being like something. And within, you know, we, we, within two years, we were billing like a million dollars a year. And, you know, within four years, we'd produced a couple features and an Oscar nominated short that that company just produced an Oscar winning short, like, and shows for Netflix. And, and, you know, and it was, a, that was my way of like trying to scrape together a way to move up the ladder without climbing it directly, like to be like, all right, well, that climbing the ladder seems like it'll take a long time. And also, you know, if directing is the goal, there is no ladder, right? Like there is no, like, uh, system for doing that. And I was like, all right, well, then I'll just go do this other thing and try and beat my way in. And I think it can be incredibly effective. But I, the thing I've thought a lot lately is that like the reason that worked for me is A, I inherited 10 grand from an uncle that I'd only met twice who uh, left me 10 grand that I could start a business with. And like, that's not an opportunity everybody gets. Mm-hmm. And also I have a personality where it worked. Like mm-hmm. I have a personality where like that, starting a business was like, oh, well, of course. And I don't think that fits for everybody. So I don't know if that's like particularly good advice because I remember once I was like teaching negotiating, I teach like a business class and I was like, oh, well, you know, one of the fun things you can do about negotiating is you can just like, you can try and divorce it from money and start thinking like picture monopoly money in your head. Like as they give numbers, like try and turn it into a game where you like put off saying a number for as long as you can and you get in the habit of immediately saying a bigger number whenever anyone asks you for anything. And one of my students raised her hand and she was like, that seems like I would rather kill myself. Mm. And I was like, and that's a fair response. Like, I don't actually think you should have to learn. Like, I kind of enjoy negotiating. I don't think you should have to enjoy negotiating in order to get to do creative work. And so I don't know that it's like great advice. I, if you enjoy negotiating and kind of enjoy business stuff, starting a business can be a way to level up in the industry. And I think it's certainly treated me well and my former partners well. And like, I'm very proud of what I built there. But like, you hear the advice so many times of like, there's no ladder. You just have to figure out a magic new way. And it's like, right. like if we could create some sort of like, all right, well, we know here's some creativity. Like, let's find ways to channel it so that we're maximizing the number of people, which it sounds like what you're doing, Al. It sounds like, the, you know, we're starting to see more and more programs that are sort of devoted to, like, let's look at the way ways previously people got access to storytelling tools. Mm-hmm. Let's acknowledge that those all have tremendous bias problems. Mm-hmm. And let's look at building other tools to give more people access to storytelling tools. I, I love that. And I also, I, I do love this idea of, you know, you started a business, uh, in my research for this episode, I was looking up the strategies. And one of the things this Forbes article mentioned was, you know, very tactical and it was develop a timeline that you can stick to. And for, for, you know, Charles, it could be building a business, uh, and making that the, the sort of runway to having that autonomy for someone else. It may take a different form, but it is something that is tangible and measurable that is based around your values, as Elle said. So identifying your values. And those are two sort of things that stuck, stuck out to me as, um, 
takeaways that we can, when we find ourselves in these situations. And with that, we'll transition to our sort of second topic. As Elle was also mentioning earlier, there is a measurable difference in opportunity when it comes to entertainment and people getting their second chance to make something. Why is the second movie the biggest hurdle for a filmmaker, especially for women and minorities? So according to the LA Times, first films are often made in this like democratic fashion on low cost cameras with crowdfunded budgets and crews made up of college friends. Um, But second movies typically rely more on the machinery of Hollywood. And this is a machinery that often excludes women and minorities. Um, So according to the UCLA Hollywood Diversity Report, in 2020, 25.4% of the directors of the year's top films were people of color, which is an 11% increase from the 14.4% in 2019. Um, But not only was this the largest single year-to-year increase in that minority share of directors, but uh, it's also the largest group of minority directors ever to be in that group. Um, So while that share has more than doubled in order for it to reach parity, we would need to see another 15% point increase in order uh, to reach the proportionate representation. And so Basically, my in taking a step from step back from that, there is this gap that we're seeing when it comes to mid-career female directors and mid-career minority uh, directors and those leadership positions behind the camera. And so, in order to fill that gap of those like studio top-grossing films, which is typically what a second, third, fourth, etc., director gets, we need to understand what the issue is and why is it more challenging for women or people of color to get their second feature made, especially when they're making that jump from indie to studio-level productions. Why do you think there is that disparity? Liz Nord, who runs uh Sundance collab came in to speak to my class and she talked about like the big gap being the first to second film gap as big as the first film gap and one of the big ones for me is that like you don't make any money on your first film like and notoriously the same is true in entertainment right like famously Frampton of Frampton Comes Alive made no money on Frampton Comes Alive the biggest selling album of the 70s because you don't make money on your first album you always have a terrible deal on your first one. And if it's successful, then you make money on your second album and Frampton had more albums and still tours and yada, yada. But like, you don't make any money on your first feature. My first feature was in a wonderful experience. I'm still friends with the producers. We were just emailing over Christmas break about things. And like, you know, I, I got a small payment for, uh, you know, a, a small thing to cover like rent and food while we were shooting. And, and seven years later, it went into residuals because of Amazon Prime. And like, it's a very family fr- family friendly film. But like, you know, Pliny, uh, the guy who runs Endcrawl has a great blog post about like indie features are not a business. And he knows mm-hmm. this by the number of people that like uh, the number of films, the number of friends of his who have films at Sundance in January asking him for work in June. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's like this thing of like, I was listening to some podcast recently and, and the director mentioned it was like, oh, well, you know, I spent my 20s trying to get that film made. And I was like, and how did you eat? Like, like yeah. I was like, I want people to always share that. Cause like for me, I, I was like, I, I, you know, I, I knew I needed, this was 20 years ago. I needed three grand a month, no matter what. Like that was my, that was rent, student loan, whatever. Rent was like 600 a month. The world was much cheaper. And like, I needed that. Like mm-hmm. I, I, there was no not finding that. And so like, 
you know, I needed to like work on film sets for 200 a day, or eventually I found color grading where I could make like better money. And so I could spend more time pursuing my own work because color grading, but like I, I needed to eat food. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that one of the big things is, you know, you're willing to do a lot of emotional free labor for your first film um, because you love it so much and you're so passionate about it and spending those four years, like I'm doing something else while I'm trying to get this movie made is doable, but then you've done that one movie and moving from that first movie to a second movie is really hard. Cause you're like, no, I just did that. <laughs> I, I would really like the second movie to put me in a position where, you know, hopefully, but like, like I said, I'm now getting residuals from the movie I directed. It took seven years. I, you know, I love that I every once in a while I get a random Amazon Prime check, often tied, <laughs> I think, to holidays because it's a fam- it's a very family movie. I'm really like that. W- we knew our target audience. What's the um, name of the film, Charles? Oh, it's called Angel's Perch. Angel's Perch. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And um, it's like a regional film. We had a really great theatrical run uh, regionally, which like is something that's very hard to do, but my producers are brilliant. And then they became, they turned that into their business of, they became, uh, small run theatrical releasing consultants for a long time because they got so good at it on that project that other people hired them to do it on theirs. It's like one of those brilliant stories of like, by doing the thing you're passionate about, you find this other thing that can sustain it. They're wonderful. Um, JT Arbogast and Kim Diltz, Diltz, team Diltzo Blast. And, um, Blast. So, yeah, I mean, it's like that gap, the the continuing sustainable career gap is huge. And the, mm-hmm. the only real answer I know of is academics mm-hmm. is that's the only world I know of where it's like, OK, you're here to teach filmmaking and we expect you to keep making stuff all the time. And like we've got faculty that like right. make something every summer or every other summer. And that's their thing. Yeah. And like short of that, there's no development system. And it's unfair to academics to put that pressure on, you know, it's like academics wasn't designed as a development system for creativity. It's not, you know, right. that's not the purpose of a university. It's a lucky byproduct of a university that we can then have faculty, you know, Nick Ray spent the last 20 years of his life um, bouncing around various schools. And that was how he continued to eat. Um, and there's a lot of interesting filmmakers who Cheryl Dunyer has been at SF state for like 20 years, although I think she just left. Like that's a, that's a, that's a move mm-hmm. to get to keep making projects but it's not, there's not enough film teaching jobs to make that how we change the industry. The industry ideally should have, it would be great if there was some sort of farm team. I don't know what that looks like. Well, I, I think the the thing, and I'd actually love to do an episode about this in entertainment, is emotional free labor. Like the, the I was just reading about a director who, you know, had a very successful film at Sundance and was fielding the success after it, but, you know, had, you know, six months later, again, looking for jobs because this thing was not paying the bills. Um, And so obviously we see, I think, I think this idea of like, well, what do you do to eat food is a fascinating question. I'm so glad that you brought it up and I feel like we should talk about it more because I know I feel I have this like weird imposter syndrome type uh, uh, fear of saying that I'm a writer director, even though I'm writing and directing sketches and I am getting paid for the very first time to write and direct something. Um, And it's a tiny, tiny little indie podcast, but still, but I pay the bills by doing 
podcast consulting. So when I introduced myself, I remember having a conversation with my partner about this. I was like, should I just say I'm an aspiring writer director because I have yet to be paid to actually do the thing? Or, and on the flip side, like, I feel like I've met, you know, the NYU uh, first year person who's like, yeah, I'm a director and says it with such confidence. And I'm like, oh, I guess they're a director haven't directed anything but you know so there's kind of this like weird I feel guilty not on both sides saying identifying myself in either way you know I don't know don't feel guilty about that there's a lot of people (laughs) I think if um and like going back to the question like why why does this disparity exist there I don't think there's any one reason like obviously there's there's systematic issues to all of it but in terms of the imposter syndrome, um, the more you say what you are, the more your brain also understands that's what you are. So you can kind of like speak it into reality. And while money like is the thing that needs to put food on the table, you are still exchanging something, whether it's your time or your emotions or, you know, like your outside of work hours, like you're still exchanging something to get the creative made. So you are in fact a writer director doing that thing <laughs> well now I what's well, also yeah. oh go ahead well it's just like going back to my like my bias of hearing golden handcuffs and assuming the only thing could be money it's like we have this weird cultural association with like whether or not you've been paid to do a thing dramatically mm-hmm. changing the thing mm-hmm. and it's like well but why 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 does whether or not you've been paid to do it dramatically change the thing right like the cave painters at let may or may not have gotten extra meat because they were doing it, or they might've just done it. The, and, you know, 20,000 years later, we still find those deeply moving. Yeah. And like, you know, T.S. Eliot worked at a bank until he was like 50 something. And he was like, I'm just going to keep writing poetry. And the bank job is going to pay the bills. And like, doesn't make him less of a poet. Like there yeah. is a weird thing. Like I'm always flabbergasted by that 19 year old freshman who's like, I'm a filmmaker. Because like, I, you know, Really? You're that kind of, like, you, you might also be wrong. Like, you, you you might discover you actually really want to be a doctor. Like, I know, you know, like, there's so much. But, like, once you know what you're going to do, I think there is, like, a legitimacy in being like, no, this is what I do. Whether or not I get paid is irrelevant. Like, there's this weird cultural fixation we have with, like, yeah. it's only real once there's a paycheck. I had a friend, actually, who got paid to do, like, some translation on a movie, and it was his first Hollywood paycheck. And he was like, you know, he was like 23 or whatever and got $500 in cash in an envelope. And he was like, it just feels different now. Like now I've been paid by Hollywood. Everything Mm -hmm. feels different now. And it's like not to direct anything, to translate some stuff because he happened to speak a language. Um, And he immediately went out and blew it because he's like, that feels like the appropriate thing to do. (laughs) And so he spent it all in an evening because he was like, my first Hollywood money. And I was like, okay, that's that's a... I mean, I, I respect, um, but yeah, I mean like whether or not we get paid for things, like we just do, you know, we do these things. Right. And that also goes back to values. Like if money is important to you and that's one of your top five values, you are probably not in the creative industry because that's not really what we're about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love how much you keep going back to values because it is this like wildly under discussed thing, right? Like even in like, not that anybody ever gets told you should be a film director in like a Hollywood in a high school uh, guidance counselor kind of class because they know it's not a job. But like there's all of this focus on like, what are your skills mm-hmm. and like, what are you what are you good at? And it's like, fuck that. 
I might be naturally terrible at filmmaking. It might just not come, like, it certainly doesn't come easy to me. I look at the stuff I did 20 years ago and I'm like, I could have been so much better. And like, so I just have devoted 50 years to getting better at it. And that's fine. If it's the thing I do, it doesn't matter if I'm naturally gifted at it. Like, there's this weird fixation we have. And like, values is the thing we go back to. Like, what are the values that we hold? And that's more important than money. It's more important than skill or gifts or talent. I love your focus on values. I haven't thought about it in that term for a while, but like creativity is creativity and like support for others and community is like a valued, valid set of values Mm -hmm. to drive you. But you have to keep repeating it because the focus on money is so culturally strong. Exactly. Yeah. I actually have mine like printed and it's like a word chart thing that some are bigger than others. And like, I go back to it to help, make decisions and there have been like really phenomenal opportunities that have come my way that, you know, either have a lot of money or prestige or something. And they were hard to say no to, but they didn't align with me. And then I've also been on the other side of the coin where I, you know, was getting paid well and had a lot of prestige and was also very miserable. So (laughs) they, they work both ways. Um, But I think like in, especially in the States, like this, you know, more capitalistic society, that we live in uh you have to always come back to like what's important to you because like Gigi with you know when you left Google I'm sure people were like why on earth would you do that they feed you they give you all this money they do all these Mm -hmm. things but it wasn't the right choice for you and and you'll hear that no matter where you go but as long as you're making the choice that aligns to you and what you want to do and also you're aware that what you want to do can change over time because you know, 50, 60, 70 years is a very long time to have a career. Um, the only the only person you really owe anything to is being true to yourself. So it's it's hard to do, but I always come back to that. I love yeah, that. it's funny. You, you've really brought back something I totally forgot about, which is that I quit my first movie as a director. Uh, <laughs> I got hired to direct a movie off my short. Uh, I, I had like, you know, I always tell my students, like, don't expect to get hired off your thesis. But I got hired twice off my thesis to direct <laughs> movies. And we did like a year of development and we got Chris Walken attached. And then we were starting a second year of development and like the script was just not getting better. And like the writer just didn't like, I saw potential for something interesting in it, but the the writers, like, it was just one of those things where I was like, Oh, no matter how hard I work, I don't think this is going to be good enough. And I had a long conversation with like a a mentor. I have a buddy in LA who was like a mentor of mine for a long time. We'd meet for coffee Mm -hmm. pretty regularly at like six in the morning Cause he was like, well, look, if you want to meet with pe- busy people, carve out a time when they're never going to have a conflict. So we met at like six 30 in the morning wow. for years. Love that wow. guy. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, he was like, everything in creativity is too hard to do it only for money. When you reach mm-hmm. the point of the project where the only thing keeping you attached to it is money. When you don't think there's anything left exciting about it, except that you got to quit. And I looked at it and I was like, yep, the only thing that I'm still excited about is like, oh, it'd be nice to like make money directing. But I, as soon as I was like, oh, I actually don't think I can make this any good. And I quit. And it was crazy because I was like 27. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't believe I'm quitting directing a movie. And then they hired another director. The movie got done. It is garbage. <laughs> and I am so glad. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, okay. but I am so glad I am not the director of that movie. <laughs> I'm going to text you after and ask for the movie <laughs> so I can watch it. 
I mean, I think that is such, I, I feel, again, here we are at this like arbitrary milestone marker of our lives that we culturally assign for new starts. But like, I, I like to use that to like take inventory and it feels like a perfect time to be like checking back in on our values. And maybe next time we record, Charles, we can share like equivalent to the word chart that Elle explained where we kind of go over what what these are and 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 I think to uh, would you be open to that yeah I mean I I have to be honest I I had a similar word chart on my wall and I threw a party once and someone (laughs) was so nice about the word chart on my wall that I got embarrassed about it and took it down because he was so nice about it and it was like the it's the weirdest thing like he was like man I really resonate with that I love like like the whole th- and like with the song conversation and then that dude stormed the Capitol on January sixth eight what? years later no oh so, my gosh like I don't you know I mean it, it the world is a very strange place it is. um yeah, he's one of the like okay. I I didn't I'll have a lot of parties that celebrities came to but he was like one of the minor not the comedian celebrity that he didn't come to this party. Oh. Um, but like, it was another one of the minor celebrities who like happened to be at my party and loved my like inspirational wor- wall world thing. And for some reason that made me take it down. But I honestly think. Because you knew would, in your heart of hearts that he was going to do something pretty bad. Maybe. I guess. I don't know. But I think I'm kind of honestly, I mean, are we allowed to be inspired by the podcast ourselves? I'm kind of inspired, inspired to get it back up. Because yes. I'm like, yeah, why the fuck did I take that shit down? Just because this one guy liked it so much. And I was like, <laughs> honestly, he had a weird vibe. And I was like, <laughs> this weird dude is like a fan of my inspirational wall art. Yeah, and it you're made like, me back you're off. Not, don't like my values. We have different values. Of course, you would take it down because you have different values. But I'm sure he was interpreting them through a very specific lens. So yeah, well, let's be inspired. Let's use that as and we can we can talk about that next time. Um, now for, as we, as we gear towards the end of this show, I want to talk about, you know, pushing aside my imposter syndrome. And now that Elle has officially given me permission to call myself a writer director, which I will a hundred percent take, uh, but somebody who has already directed somebody who has, uh, you know, played at Sundance. Let's talk a little bit about that mid-career role and getting into that second feature. And Elle, you've you've spent a lot of time working and developing these programs for people in their early stages of their careers. And from that, and especially as like I say, the three of us are all in middle advanced parts of our, our lives, uh, what, uh, what have you found and what are some of the findings and proposed solutions that you know, you think the entertainment industry can move towards and work towards in supporting, you know, those voices for their second chance to make a story and tell a story, especially if, say, their first chance was a film that they felt pressure to take on because it was for money. And despite having a great actor attached to it, it ended up being horrible, which it seems like, Charles, you totally dodged that bullet. But some folks may have had felt obligated to see that through. So talk to us a little bit about that sort of like mid-career gap. Yes. Okay. And this is, um, this was for a program that I was working on before the holidays. So it's specifically focused on, on women directors, but this, this same sort of disparity works basically for all the underrepresented groups like LGBTQIA, people of color, et cetera. 
Um, so there's a few different places where female directors get stuck on both the TV and the feature side. So encouragingly, first-time directors um, for the 2019 to 2020 TV season um, were, were at 47% for women, which is up quite a bit from, from previous seasons. And um, on the film side, there is about 25-26% representation of female-directed films in indie, but on the studio side, it's only at 1.9%. So there is a gap there as well. Um, and then another crazy one is that a lot of people, especially on the TV side, they tend to get stuck in TV for hire. So they, you know, like they have their their first few episodes and, and they're getting to direct episodes here and there, but they have a really hard time jumping into either over to features or into their own original series. And then on the documentary side, like on Unscripted, there's actually over-representation of women because documentaries are lower budget, but then they have a hard time jumping to studios as well. So it's not just one problem for TV or film, it's it's a, it's a whole one. Um, and because there's not just one problem, there is also not just one solution. So there's kind of three areas that I've outlined that I think the industry could help with. Some are already happening. Um, the first one we have done this at Google and other companies have done this as well is really supporting um, shorts, whether they're a proof of concept for a feature or a TV pilot. So we did uh, five with Paul Feig's Powder Keg, and we're also doing some with the PGA fellows as well as women in film. So this is basically what what corporations or you know, buyers or funders, um, financiers can really do to help the creative process is, as we've been talking about, money. COVID has made costs go up. Um, there's a whole other department in the line budget. It's There's a lot of PPE that needs to be done. It's also just inflation has risen 6% this year. So it's it's harder and harder for things to get made and corporations tend to have money to help fill that gap. Um, and this can also kind of help at, so there's a lot of different companies who are big ad spenders and do a lot of commercials. And so they can also help bridge that back gap from the commercial side of the industry to the more creative side, because that's another gap for directors as well. So you'll see a lot of these kind of like go through the festival circuit. Um, I'm a big fan that the, the more companies can get involved in this, the better. Of course, it always scares Hollywood because they don't want big brands to to really be in there, but brands are so much a part of people's life that you can do it in a very natural way that doesn't really put the creative at risk. And for most people, the shorts are like, they're usually a proof of concept. So something bigger can get made and either the production company or the brand can kind of help them pitch around. Um, so these like feeder programs are amazing and I think can help, they're helpful for anyone in the industry. And then there's also so many programs that exist already because there are change makers within the industry that have really gone above and beyond to, to help programs. So in, in addition to corporations, um, there's also companies like Array or Dan Lin's Rideback who um, have, you know, kind of like their in-house programs. Uh, Powder Keg has the one that we partnered partnered with. HBO Access has one. So if you could just like dig around on 
PGA or DGA websites. There are a lot there as well as festivals. Um, there's a one that I was informed about recently called the Bentonville Film Festival, and it was founded by Gina Davis, and it's all about women. So there's there's so many programs that already exist, and then one with women in film, which you can find on their website. Women in film has done an incredible job. They've actually also partnered with Sundance to do this program called Reframe, and Reframe is a program that's founded by Women in Film and Sundance that provides career acceleration for female directors. They're starting with directors, but they want to take it to DPs and other roles in the industry as well. Um, so they have their stamp and you can apply for with your production for the Reframe stamp, which basically says that the crew was made up of at least 50% women because that's the parody that we're going for. And then Reframe Rise is they're in, they've done one pilot season, they're in their next one, or they're selecting their next one, and it's for directors. And instead of, um, like mentoring is always great, but this program actually matches uh, people that can hire and fire in the industry with directors. And so it's all about having an advocate who's in the room making the hiring decisions. Um, to really like get people into their second series and original series or their next feature and things like that. And that is a two year sponsorship program. Um, so they've done eight and now they're going to in their next season do bring directors of photography on board as well. So I think the more that um, the whole industry can really get involved in these and anyone that really cares about creative, like there is not just one solution. Um, but these are all just like great ideas and projects and we, there's going to be a lot of work to get parity for, for women in the industry. Um, and then the numbers are similar for other groups as well, but it's like, I'm very inspired by it because it, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion has been a topic for a long time and it has, it has had longevity and it continues to be something that people are really pushing forward. So I'm inspired by it and I, I love a good challenge, but these are just some of the things that I've discovered and also helped build to really get that, that parody up. I love the reframe stamp because it, you know, feels like an, a reward that is acknowledged. And it's to me, obviously I'm, I'm looking out for this, but um, if it can become this sort of, uh, coveted thing that people want to go for and we can incentivize people to 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 aim for that and you know so many great films including wonder woman 1984 and mulan and promising young woman um and in this last year nomadland and um uh raya and the last dragon uh so many great films are you know it's it's no no longer a question of oh should we make this reach gender parity for example but let's do it so we can get this stamp and we can incentivize people who would, who just, I don't think would be thinking about it otherwise because making a film or a TV show is incredibly hard. And so it's like ways to make it easier for people to want to engage in this way. Um, I love that. There's also like actual industry tools that exist because one of the things that we've heard throughout kind of like years of research on this is 
oh, I would love to hire a black woman to direct this, but I just can't find them. So I went with my like typical person that I always go with. Um, and Array Crew is a, a below the line crew directory to hire anyone from underrepresented background. And then um, there's another group I have to look it up, but it's this, it's the same idea to really help get, um, like, like disabled writers into rooms instead of like, we've seen a lot of disabled representation increase, but it's not increasing in the writer's room. It's only increasing on screen. So it's called the inevitable foundation and they just launched this in December. So we're also starting to see, um, different foundations pop up and tools that exist. So you know, by the end of next year, there's really no excuse for, well, I couldn't find them because there are, there are websites that you can find them on and they're very easy. Well, it feels like there's like actionable, there's change and these programs and resources can affect change. Um, so thank you for, for talking us through that. Um, well, I am going to wrap it up uh, and maybe I, I, I wonder if we can maybe start a little tradition with our guests on the Distorted by Glamour podcast. Um, and that is, I actually don't know what it is. So Charles, maybe we can improvise something here. I was going to, I mean, it seems like we should be inspired by our guests and say, what value do you hope to bring to 2022? Yeah, I love that. Okay, you guys go first. I have to think of mine. I mean, I'm going to try and bring a sense of community to 2022. I feel like that's like a lot of people don't appreciate how much deliberate deliberate effort needs to go to build a community. And mm -hmm. I think after pandemic isolation for the last couple of years, like I'm going to actively be trying to foster community wherever I can this year. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, I, I am going to try, I am going to bring a value of embracing failure. Um, I think at this stage, uh, every failure means I'm moving forward and the people that I'm working with, we're failing forward towards something and it means we're putting ourselves out there. So I'm going to open my arms and welcome failure into my life and celebrate it. I love that. Good growth mindset, GG. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> the one that keeps coming into my mind is collaboration, which has a lot to do with what you said, Charles, about community, um, but very intentional collaboration and a whole idea of we're stronger and more powerful together. So really building each other up and and really pushing everything to the next level. So for me, it's collaboration. Yay. Yay, values. And listeners, let us know what, uh, what values you'll be bringing to 2022. Um, 2021 is over and maybe we can, uh, look forward to, to different times. Um, well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Elle, for, uh, coming on as our guest. And, um, thank you to my co-host Charles for, uh, also contributing to the conversation. I'll see everybody in episode four. Amazing. See you in episode four. <laughs>